Please be seated. Very good morning, and I welcome you again to our uh, service this Sunday morning uh, here in Church of the Good Shepherd. As you know, this is our second service of the weekend. We've already launched our Saturday contemporary service, and we praise God for the young people who are helming that service. But also, there are people of all ages that come, even visitors, and we are grateful for that. Uh, but I'm glad you're also here uh, in our main service. And today I want to pick up uh, again from the uh, epistle of James, um, um, just sharing some thoughts from it. And James, of course, is a, a, a book that deals with practical Christianity uh, and uh, practical wisdom from above. In fact, in verse uh, 13 in this passage, it begins, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Now, if you've read through the book of James, you know that James is very concerned about how we live our lives. You know, that we not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. And as a result, uh, the great reformer Martin Luther actually had his doubts about this uh, book, whether it ought to be kept in the canon. Scripture, I'm thankful he didn't have his way, that it is there. But James labeled this book the Epistle of Straw because he felt that it seemed to contradict uh, all that Paul had been preaching about grace. And, you know, it seems like he's now talking all about works. But I believe that, you know, it's here as the revealed Word of God because it's not contrary to grace, but complementary. You know, the gospel needs the law. Just as much as the law needs the gospel, they are both God's words. They're God's two words to us. And I think James is an important book. In fact, earlier on, if you read in the book of James, in James chapter 2, verse 18, it says, but, if someone, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. The message, uh, Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this verse, says it quite clearly, and I like what he says. He says there, I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good, you take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together, hand in glove. You know, it sort of reminds me of that movie, I don't know if you all remember, it was Academy Award winner uh, uh, um, entitled Forrest Gump. Tom Hanks was the star of the movie. A couple of weeks back, my family sat down to watch a movie together and we decided to watch that movie. And it's, you know, quite a wholesome movie and we enjoyed it. But there's a phrase that Forrest Gump would always trot out, which his mother taught him. His mother said to him, you know, stupid is as stupid does. And on first blush, it's like, what are you talking about? You know? <laughs> but his point is this. You can call him stupid, but judge him by what he does. You know, his actions speak far louder than his words. Yes, he was, you know, intellectually challenged, but he did brilliant things. You know, ways in which he treated people were, you know, fine examples of how we ought to be uh, uh, treating fellow human beings and the like. And you know, of course, as much as I do, and you may have met people who are brilliant in every other way except you know, they do stupid things in their lives, which mess up their lives entirely. And in some ways, that's the way to look at this, you see. Uh, you know, it's one thing to say you have faith, but it's another thing if the way you live doesn't reflect the faith that you carry 
in your heart. And that's what James is talking about. And we're going to look at this text in particular because in it, James deals with two kinds of wisdom. Worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And first, let's look at worldly wisdom. We pick it up from verse 15. James says this, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile uh, practice. And you skip on down uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, it continues, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask uh, and you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's talking here about the worldly wisdom, the way the world often operates. The world says to us, right, uh, good guys finish last. The world says to us, you have to look out for number one, or we want to use a, a more colloquial saying, tike po tike. <laughs> you have to take care of yourself. You know, uh, 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 Singaporeans will say, if you don't chong, you're going to lose out. Right? That's the root of our kyasu spirit. And in some ways, if you look at this, you know, this is one of the issues I uh, sometimes have with the people who preach what is sometimes labeled the prosperity gospel. Not that I don't believe God blesses us immensely. And I think they bring a, a good word because they teach generosity. You know, when we know that we have no lack, when we know that God uh, blesses those who follow His Word and, and, and live according to His Word, we are generous with what God has given us. Right? And that's always a good thing. But the problem is sometimes, you know, it, it, it baptizes our uh, um, wrong passions, our, our wrong desires. And we believe that, you know, I can ask anything of God and believe that the Lord will give it. It, it uh, sort of blesses um, um, greed. And it's, it's something which is uh, problematic. It breeds an attitude of greed. But if you think about worldly wisdom, you know, we see examples of it all the time. Uh, Singapore, we have this thing called stomp, right? <laughs> all the time, people will uh, show in terms of social media terrible behavior. And most often, as you stop and you think about it, it's precisely what James was warning about, that this kind of, uh, of selfish behavior results in the type of behaviors we see littered all over social media. I've recently moved, we finally moved to our place in uh, Queenstown and we uh, thoroughly enjoy where we are now. The neighborhood's wonderful. I just walked to church this morning. You know, it takes me six minutes to get here. Time did, all right? <laughs> so I, I know I, I won't be late. If I'm late, you better... <laughs> I cannot say, oh, I got caught in traffic. I don't have that excuse. But one of the things we were talking about, Karen and I, is like, oh dear, we don't really know our neighbors yet. And you know, sometimes you see uh, these neighbors from hell. <laughs> no matter what you do, they end up uh, um, uh, 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 making life difficult in the neighborhood that you live in. But nonetheless, you know, it's that sort of um, worldly wisdom that people live by that I need to take care of myself, that my rights are more important than the needs of those around me. That is the worldly wisdom that James warns about. But he contrasts it then with godly wisdom. Verse 17, he picks it up. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, 
gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Again, I like to use the message because it unpacks the language for us. Uh, uh, you know, it, it doesn't try to do a, a direct translation. It's obviously um, the ESV uses the, the Greek and translates it into English quite literally. As, but this gives us a sense of what was trying to be said. Real wisdom, God's wisdom begins with a holy life and is characterized by getting along with others. It is gentle and reasonable, overflowing with mercy and blessings. Not hot one day and cold the next. Not two-faced. Who would you rather be friends with? Who would you rather be neighbors with? Person who practices godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? I think I know which uh, type of person I want. Who would you rather be? You know, and this is the reality, and, and he, he, he points out then in verse 19, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He makes this point, and it, it stands to reason, you know, if you sow kindness, you're going to get kindness. If you sow peace, you will get peace. You sow patience, you receive patience. And if, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, the way Scripture teaches us is that Loving your neighbor as yourself ultimately births goodness in your neighbor. Now, I know there are always exceptions to this rule, but by and large, I've found it to be true that as I've learned to exercise the fruit of the Spirit and act in Christian ways, practicing godly wisdom with those around us, even my children, you know, it births a goodness that is born from godly wisdom. And that's what we all strive for. I know looking across this room, all of you, Try your very best to do that. But the question still remains, right? Uh, uh, I remember J. John used to talk about the YBH principle. It's all good, well and good. The Bible tells you what to do. The question is this, yes, but how? Yes, but how? How do we make that happen? It's far easier to say we want to be a people of godly wisdom than it is to become a person of godly wisdom. I believe it starts by admitting that we need help, by uh, acknowledging the fact that most of us, by and large, when nobody is looking, when we are our true self, we often operate by worldly wisdom. And I include everyone, including myself. Because in verse 14, I skip us back in the passage, it says that, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast. And be false to the truth. You know, so often we are able to deceive ourselves and uh, pretend that we are better than we truly are. And this is one of the reasons we need the law. The law, as I told you uh, a few weeks back, you know, acts like a mirror before us. It points out our flaws, our failings. It helps us to acknowledge the truth about ourselves. And we know this, that if we continue to maintain pride, continue to deny the truth, God opposes the proud. But if we want grace, grace is available to those who are humble. Not that God withholds grace, but we don't avail ourselves of the grace of God because of our pride, our unwillingness to acknowledge that we are in desperate need of His grace. 
Our pride causes us to think more highly about ourselves than we ought, is what Paul says in, in, in uh, the book of Philippians. St. Augustine, you know, one of his great insights into human nature, he talked about cor incovitas in se, which means our hearts are turned inward on itself. That there is this selfish bent within the human heart that if we are not uh, mindful of and uh, um, aware of, you know, can lead us astray. This is why every Anglican uh, worship service has a section for the general confession. I know sometimes when we are in liturgy, especially young people say, ah, yeah, so boring, what are you going through repeating things again and again and again? And, and the reason we do that is because we recognize that it takes, you know, uh, um, formation takes repetition. It requires us to remind ourselves of who we are before a holy God. That we don't come before God flippantly or just uh, with, uh, uh, assumptions that, you know, uh, um, and presumptuously, but coming before God, recognizing that it is His grace, it's only by His grace that we can enter into His presence. And recognizing the reality of who we are, we have the general confession to remind ourselves that we fail by thought and word and deed, by things we have done, by the things we have left undone. You know, some of the older uh, liturgies say there is no health in us. And, and that's the reality of who we are. As I was preparing for this sermon, I came across a social media post by a friend in Toronto. And um, he was basically posting because, you know, he was uh, trying to encourage, I guess, you, all of you have some friends who are very anti-vax, right? You have uh, people who are almost denying the reality of COVID. I don't know if you have, but I certainly <laughs> have some people. I, I received a, 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 a WhatsApp message from su one such person and, you know, sending me a video saying uh, taking a vaccine is um, um, putting my spiritual health in in jeopardy. You know, I, I chose not to <laughs> engage or return. But uh, one of the things um, his friend was posting was a person uh, uh, expounding on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And, you know, it did it in a way which I had never really thought of, but, you know, makes so much sense. If you think about the parable of Good Samaritan, we don't have to read it because most of you know it pretty well. You know, on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho were three types of people. First were, of course, the robbers. And robbers have this mentality, what is yours is mine. So I have no qualms about taking what belongs to you. And they robbed that traveler who was on that road. But then the second type of person were uh, characterized by the priest and the Levite. And basically, their mentality was, what is mine is mine. And so, you know, I have to look out for myself, I have to protect myself, I have to make sure that my safety is, you know, uh, taken care of, and I uh, want to ensure that I don't get away late by taking the time to help this traveller, right? So what is mine is mine, and it's uh, often a, a, an attitude driven by fear. But the third character, of course, in the parable is the Samaritan, the good Samaritan we call him. And in his, his mindset is this, what is mine is yours. That my safety, I will sacrifice for yours. My time is yours. My resources are yours to nurse you back to health, to do what it takes to make sure that you are better off. And Jesus, of course, was uh, telling this parable in the context of this uh, man who was trying to trip him up 
and asking him the question of who is my neighbor when he was uh, rec recognizing the fact that God calls all of us to that great commandment, right? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also then the second is like unto it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The point of the parable is that what does it take to love our neighbor as ourselves? And, you know, in the case of the vaccines, what he's trying to say, my friend was trying to say, is that, you know, yes, there is some risk uh, taking the vaccine. But, you know, for the sake of the good of society, for the sake of those who are even more at risk, I will vaccinate myself so that I don't, you know, inadvertently uh, continue this uh, pandemic beyond what it should. And I'm, I'm glad you all are here. I'm preaching to the choir because you are here because you're already vaccinated. But, you know, uh, nonetheless, that's not what I, my point is. My point is really, what does it take to love our neighbor as ourselves? And this is where uh, um, James 4, 7 and 8 uh, brings it home. He says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it's the devil who sows doubt, who sows lies. You know, the, the problem I have with a lot of the people who are anti-vax is because they're believing lies, right? You, you read and just the plausibility of these uh, uh, things just don't make any sense in terms of logic or reason. And, you know, to say this person who has no medical background trumps all the infectious disease experts and the governments of the world are under the thrall of, you know, big pharma, and stuff like that, I, I, I don't want to prove. <laughs> I shouldn't talk about it anymore because I give them more airtime than they need to have. But, you know, it's, it's really the scheme of the devil, I believe, when uh, people do things like that. Now, it's not to say that there are no issues and no problems. Of course there are. Of course we now know that, you know, vaccination doesn't entirely protect you from it, but it does make it uh, a sh much shorter incubation period, makes it um, such that you shed the virus for a shorter period of time. So the chances of you infecting others is lesser than if you are unvaccinated, not to speak about your, the, the risk to yourself also. But again, <laughs> this is not the point of my sermon. Sorry, I got a bit carried away. You can tell I'm a bit, you know, instead of talking to my friend, I'm talking to you all. Sorry. <laughs> But verse 8 continues. Let me get back to the passage. It says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, preceded the reading that we were talking about um, in uh, Mark's Gospel where it's funny, right? Jesus turns to the disciples saying, what were you guys talking about? And they were sheepish. Because they know their conversation was not an example of godly wisdom. Here they were, his disciples, following him 24-7, trying to learn the ways of God. And they realized, you know, their argument, who's the greatest among us, is not fit for repetition in the, eyes of, in the ears of Jesus. And so they tried to avoid it, but Jesus must have overheard snatches of that conversation, or if not, there was some divine insight. And he had to uh, point out to them that when he sat them down, he said to them, if any one of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This is the great reversal in the kingdom of God. This is why you know, being a Christian means 
doing things which are sometimes contrary to the, wor- the way the world would see things. Why, you know, the, the way of leadership by God's uh, standards and in His kingdom, completely different from the way the world would have you believe it needs to run. That's why Jesus tells us, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that is Jesus' call to us to surrender. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, you know, the call to discipleship is when God bids a man, he bids a man come and die. (laughs) Die to self. Die to selfish ambitions. Die to vain pride. Die to the things that you would normally want to uphold as important in life, your rights and uh, uh, the things which you want, you know, looking out for number one. Let me end with this thought uh, from the Old Testament reading. You know, this verse I, I loved when I was young. I make Mother's Day cards. I always, you know, because of who my parents are, I must always put uh, scripture verse. And this was my favorite scripture verse to put on my Mother's Day card, right? Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And of course, this comes at the end of this great um, ode to the, the um, woman who is the example in life. But I, I learned as I went through seminary and, and studying wisdom literature, you know, this was basically the personification of wisdom. It's, uh, the, the start, wisdom was called Lady Wisdom in chapter 1. And it, it, you know, encapsulates it and it points out to us, if you read through that list, wisdom is as wisdom does. A wise woman shows herself prudent. She plans ahead. She's modest. She takes care of her family. She does things which, you know, people will praise her for because of uh, the godliness she demonstrates in her life. And this a personification of wisdom is something we all want to look towards and look for. But you know, the ultimate personification is of course found. All, all the ideals that Scripture point to find their climax in Jesus Christ. They point us to the only one who is perfect. In 1 Corinthians chapter, 23, uh, chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, Paul said this, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Right? Stumbling block to Jews because he was accursed and yet became a curse for us. But foolishness to Gentiles because it turned the way of the world's thinking upside down. There was strength in weakness. Surrendering himself to death on the cross is hardly the... um, um, modus operandi we would have for someone who is a superhero (laughs) or someone who is coming to save us all. And yet, in verse 24 it says, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is the personification of wisdom. And the wisdom we desire that comes from above comes in the person of Jesus. If we want to live a life of wisdom, we need to be in, the rela- in relationship with the one who is God's wisdom. By putting on Christ, living in Christ, and Christ living in us, that is what enables us to live out godly wisdom in our lives. 
And that's the invitation I want to leave you with as we conclude this time together. As we come to the table of our Lord, that's one of the things we remind ourselves of. That God's wisdom confounds our wisdom. That He emptied Himself. He surrendered Himself even though He was God. He took on the form of a servant and served us not just by washing the feet of the disciples, but by ultimately giving His life for us. And as we see the love of God, you know, uh, reenacted for us at the table of our Lord, let us be reminded of that great love He has for us. And let us, as we receive that love, become channels of that love to others so that we can become a people who learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. In demonstration of the godly wisdom that James encourages all of us to live out in our lives. Let's come before the Lord in prayer as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us from His Word. Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, separates bone from marrow, soul from spirit. It has a way of cutting right to the heart of the matter. And I believe today, as you've heard the word, God is challenging some, many, hopefully all of us, have we been a people who've been living by worldly wisdom? Has the word of God as a mirror shown up the ugliness that's in our lives? If that is true, then let's repent. Let us come before God and acknowledge the ugliness that's still there and surrender before Him. Let us put off the flesh and let's put on the Spirit. Allow the fruit of Spirit to develop and to grow within us so that we might become a people of godly wisdom who live out a wisdom from above allow ourselves to become people who are worthy of the name Christian. Let me pray for us right now. God, our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge that, Lord, so many times we have failed. Lord, not only failed by the things we have done or not done, things we have thought or said, but we also failed in that some, so often, Lord, we deceive ourselves. We think of ourselves as not so bad, especially when we compare ourselves to our neighbor. Yet, Lord, we know that the standards are not our standards that we need to live up to, but yours. Father, I thank you for your grace. The grace that is freely available to each and every one of us. 
Thank you, Lord, that we were reminded in the song we sang earlier that, Lord Jesus, you love us with an everlasting love, a love that's demonstrated on the cross that we will be reminded of as we come to your table this morning. And I pray, Lord, that as we receive your grace afresh, Father, that it would continue to do that work of transformation in our lives. That we will be a people who look out to the interests of others, not just to our own. That we would consider others better than ourselves, more important than ourselves. That we will be a people who would learn to love our neighbor as ourselves. We ask you, Lord, to do that deep work in each and every one of us this day. And all these things we ask and pray in your Son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen. I invite the worship team to come up. We're going to take the offertory.